Welcome to your information pod. Please select your subject of study. You have selected Earth 1.0. Please note, some learners do find this subject distressing. Earth 1.0 was humanity's first native planet, now known as the Cradle of Humanity, the Great CO2 Experiment, and let's never talk of this colossal balls up ever again. Earth 1.0 saw humanity from its beginnings in single-celled life in the primordial swamp, all the way through to the multicellular mammalian organisms which developed language and agriculture. Around 200,000 years into humanity's development on Earth 1.0, a period known as the Industrial Revolution sparked what we now refer to as the beginning of the end. You can learn more about this period in Dr. Judith Maynard's seminal book, Jesus Christ, What Were We Thinking? Touch the screen now to add this book to your reading list and listen to an extract from Dr. Maynard's last lecture. Yes, the first planet that humans occupied really was a demonstration in just how much we can, if left to our own devices, absolutely destroy something, even if doing so will essentially leave us with no home. I, I don't know whether you've seen that amusing set of photos of a dog who has walked ink through its owner's house while they were out. <laughs> the ink is literally everywhere, trodden into all the carpets. The house is a complete write-off. Well, that's what we did to the earth, really. Completely destroyed it. The only difference is the dog didn't know what it was doing. Human beings discovered that by burning fuel such as gas and oil, they could power lights which allowed them to break free of the tyrannical day-night cycle to which the movement of the planets had tied them. They could extend their working days. They could create modes of transport allowing them to get to and from work faster. They really did seem to enjoy working. As they did this, a chemical compound composed of one carbon and two oxygen atoms was pumped into the atmosphere of Earth 1.0. This compound, known as carbon dioxide, or CO2, is a greenhouse gas. It is actually necessary for human life in the right quantities. But human beings have never been great at moderation, and they continued to pump this compound into their atmosphere until the world burned. Remember the little glass greenhouse your grandmother used to have in her back garden? Well, imagine she had a fan heater, a radiator and an open fire inside that greenhouse and she was also wearing ten layers of clothing. The inside would get hotter and hotter until all her plants would wither away and eventually your grandmother's skin would boil. Actually, my grandmother would probably quite like it if it were that hot. She wore a puffer jacket in the summer. But you get my point. That's what humans did to their first home. They boiled it. Hello everyone, I'm Jam Arrowsmith. Thank you so much for downloading this first episode of No Planet B, a funny podcast about the least funny thing imaginable, climate change. In every episode, we all meet a climate scientist, campaigner or activist, and then you'll hear some stupid sketches I wrote based on the subjects we discussed. Like a lot of people, I wanted to do something about climate change. I switched to a renewable energy supplier and I started carrying a reusable cup and bamboo cutlery in my bag to cut down on single-use plastic. I used beeswax wraps to replace cling film. I went back to bars of soap instead of liquid soap in plastic bottles. I even have a bar of shampoo now. All of these things are great and I'm really hoping that I'll receive many tweets congratulating me on how brilliant I am. But it all felt very small. It just didn't feel like I was doing enough. And I think a lot of people feel that way. Today's guest is Sam Knight, an activist with Extinction Rebellion. Now, Extinction Rebellion have been in the news quite a bit recently. Some of their activists took their clothes off in the public gallery of the House of Commons during a Brexit debate. Some glued their hands to the glass and some wore grey 
body paint and elephant masks to draw attention to the elephant in the room that is climate change. The whole intervention prompted an amusing photo of Ed Miliband looking shocked and a slew of MPs making hilarious puns. Conservative MP James Heapy tweeted, Parliament just got a bit more nuts. Labour MP Peter Kyle began his speech, The naked truth is, Mr Speaker, I'm grateful for this cheeky intervention. And Conservative MP Justine Greening commented he was fleshing out his argument well. (laughs) If only they put as much effort into solving the problems of both Brexit and climate change as they did into those puns. Extinction Rebellion is an activist group which uses non-violent direct action and civil disobedience to avert climate breakdown and prevent the sixth mass extinction. I talked to Sam about all of this. Hello, my name is Sam Knight and I am part of Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion is a mass movement of people, ordinary people, who are concerned about climate change. Concerned actually is probably the wrong word to use. Angry is upset, frightened, really, really frightened about what is to come. And part of our political analysis is such that what we don't think is going to work anymore is a sort of reformist attitude to politics. We believe in a sort of revolutionary mode of politics, but also a sort of civil disobedience, taking direct action so that you're empowering ordinary people to get out onto the streets and do something about the scale and magnitude of this as a crisis. About six months ago, I, I volunteered my flat space in London as a meeting point for Extinction Rebellion, which was set up a really short time ago. It was about eight, nine months. It's, it's had an exponential, non-linear growth in the time that it's been set up and totally taken us all by surprise. The time that I offered my flat was because nobody else lived in London. There were about 15 people involved in the entire campaign. Uh, and suddenly I had them turn up. I either now sort of embrace this or I shut the door and never think about this again. And I chose to embrace it and since then have just been on, a, on this weird, bizarre journey where we've seen it grown from 15 people in my living room to sort of a mass movement of, of, of thousands. Um, and I suspect actually those 15 people that turned up weren't the only people involved. I suspect there were 50, 60, 100 of us. But the point is it was really small and it suddenly had this growth. And my role in that has, has shifted and changed. So I used to be responsible for our media and messaging strategy. I'm now on our political strategy team. So I spend my life talking to sort of political influencers and NGOs and various other people that can help us with our sort of political dynamics and strategy. Um, but I'm also, yeah, an ordinary activist on the ground. So last month I got arrested trying to disrupt International Petroleum Week which is a week of um, oil and gas companies uh, descend upon London and try to make new deals and talk about what they call new opportunities, um, which is is fossil fuel reserves. And it's about pointing out that this thing, that this way of being, business as usual, isn't okay anymore. And that wherever it happens, we're going to be there and somebody is going to say that this isn't right. We already have enough fossil fuel reserves to, to burn the world five times over. And, and these companies are going out and trying to procure new ones. And, and there is something so morally and politically abhorrent about that that it feels wrong not to do something and, and not to speak out about it. I asked Sam whether he thought civil disobedience was a necessary part of the movement. Do you have to break the law in order to affect change? Yeah, I think you do. I think you do, and that that works on a sort of social change level of what affects change in a country or a state. It also works on a repersonal level, you know? Like, when I got arrested, it suddenly 
became real for a lot of my friends. And I had so many texts and messages and people leaving me voicemails saying that this was a sort of a moment of um, clarity for them because, because you're acting as if the truth is real and therefore the crisis becomes sort of tangible in, a, in, in that very real and true sense. I'm a nerd. I've never been right. in trouble with anyone, like my teachers, let alone the right. police. <laughs> And then there I was, like, sat in a police cell for 16 hours. Of course, I was, I was terrified. And the justice system is sort of, without wanting to sound too hyperbolic about it, it is designed to degrade and demean. And you, and you feel that. And you go through the stages of being in the cell and existing and dealing with all your emotions around it. And the only thing, ultimately, you have to hang on to is that sense of what you're doing is right and it is just and it's important but that's really hard to hang on to sometimes when everything else is floating about. It's really important to remember that people are dying right now in the global south. This isn't something that we can think about in the abstract anymore. It's not okay to say 2050, 2060 maybe. We have to start taking action now and actually there are a lot of countries in the global south who have 2025 as their target, who are working towards that, who already have the policy in place. They're leading the way, we're behind, and we need to start saying that as much as possible. We, we, we think very short-termist about how we are structuring and the decisions that we're making now, and of course that like, can be seen very plainly in the sort of profit motive of oil and gas companies, but is true in the same sort of thinking in our political class. Okay, okay, I'm from the fire service, everyone remain calm. The fire is in its early stages and it's only hit the offices on the south side at the moment. My colleagues are dealing with that. But if we make our way in an orderly fashion down the nearest fire escape, there's no reason anyone should get hurt. Well, come on then. Why is no one moving? Oh, well, we're actually okay at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I'm not too hot. It's actually fine. There's an alarm going off. Can't you hear it? The fire's on the first three floors of the south block. Mmm, that's quite far away, isn't it? Tell you what, we'll carry on doing what we're doing and you just let us know when we should worry. Now, you should worry now. Um, I was thinking it might be quite nice if it was a bit warm around here. I'm always complaining it's too cold. <laughs> she is. I am. Also, it was hailing yesterday in April and I'm still wearing a scarf. It's really chilly. But now we're expected to worry about a theoretical fire making it too hot. It's like, make your minds up, is it too hot or too cold? It's not a theoretical fire, it's a real fire, and I'm getting word that it's spread to the base of this wing, so the fire escape isn't an option anymore. We're gonna have to leave via the windows, people! My crew are positioning the ladders now! Okay, well, as long as there's another option for escape, you just let us know when we should really be worried. Now! I actually heard that the fire doesn't exist and it's all just a ploy to get us to use ladders. Oh, uh, is that true? Are you being paid by Big Ladder? Big ladder what are you talking about look we need to get out now i can't actually see any flames so you do have to wonder whether this fire is even real yeah i read a blog that said all fires are actually holograms oh my god i saw that uh it is real and i don't think it is so let's just agree that there are different viewpoints about whether this so-called fire exists oh look this is ridiculous See, that's typical of these elitist experts. A true firefighter would actually debate with me about the existence of the fire. We haven't got time! Can we have the debate outside once we're safely out of the building? Uh, if I leave the building and then it turns out there's no fire, I will have left the building for nothing. But if you don't do anything, you'll die! Uh, might die. Ah! Calling all units! 
The fire has spread to these offices, requesting immediate assistance. Okay, there's now smoke and fire in this room. Can you agree it exists now? Hmm, I guess it exists, but how can we be sure it's even a problem? It's a fire! <coughs> yeah, but <coughs> fires are natural. They happen in nature all the time. <coughs> yeah, I mean, <coughs> my shoes and trousers are now ablaze, and I notice Sandra over there is rolling on the floor to try and put out the flames engulfing her cardigan. Oh, no, it's my best cardigan. But maybe the fire is meant to be here. If you look at the projections, we're probably overdue for a fire. Ah! The roof's caved in! Emergency backup teams, mobilise! Oh God, I'm trapped under a girder! Why didn't the so-called experts warn us this would happen? It is 11am on the 15th of April 2019, which means Extinction Rebellion's International Day of Rebellion has just started. Uh, I am on Oxford Street, walking towards Marble Arch, which is one of five locations in London that they are occupying. So Marble Arch, Oxford Circus, Piccadilly Circus, Waterloo Bridge and Parliament Square. Let's talk to some of the people there. So uh, I actually study the effects of climate change uh, on um, mosquito-borne diseases. And, uh, and my background is I'm in zoology. Uh, and so I understand first-hand from actually running the models how they will affect biodiversity, disease, water shortages and so I need to do something basically. In my department we just publish papers constantly about the projected effects of climate change yet it's fine just presenting them but actually something needs to be done and so that's why I've loved being part of XR is because I really feel I'm with a community of people that really want to make change rather than just report it. So, 97% or 99% of scientists and research points that we are heading towards uh, climate breakdown and there's the money there to do something about it, there's the tools there to do something about it and yet nothing's being done about it. People are up in arms and on the streets protesting against leaving the European Union and things like that. And the perfect analogy was made at a previous Extinction Rebellion, which is that it's just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. There's not very much point in it. In 50 years, people aren't going to be going, Dad, how come you didn't stop us leaving the EU? People are going to be saying, Dad, how come you let half, you know, the coastal towns go underwater? How come you let thousands of species of animal go extinct? How come you let the coral reefs die? How come you let the water, the soil get more acidic and that's what's going to be asked. I think, I think as a species we have a thing which in some instances is a real skill and in this instance is potentially really dangerous. We're able to turn a blind eye and it's a self-preservation thing in many instances because otherwise we might become overloaded and I think that we've been turning a blind eye, turning a blind eye and actually now we've got to a point where it's very dangerously too late, you know, the, the planet is in serious danger of not being able to support human life anymore. Well, there was a report by the UN that's come out recently, kind of looking at how we only have 12 years to, to limit uh, climate change to 1.5 degree difference, and just reading everything through, looking at how the Paris Agreement is basically the only thing that's stopping us go up to a four or five degree difference, and even that, like governments aren't respecting the max of two degree difference that the Paris Agreement has put in place. And also, 
how different things would be because the Paris Agreement means that we have to kind of limit climate uh, global warming to between 1.5 and 2 degree but there'll be a massive there's already a massive difference between whether we have a 1.5 degree change or a two degree change and that's not being taken into account as well um, and governments are just not taking this seriously enough and we're the last generation that will be able to do anything about it. Back to my interview with Sam Knights from Extinction Rebellion. I went to COP24 this year, the UN Conference on Climate Change, and the delegates from the indigenous communities in Africa were literally in tears because they had been forced to spend the entire day debating whether the latest IPCC report, the report on 1.5 degrees warming, whether they were going to note or welcome it. This was the conference which commissioned the report and they were debating whether to even acknowledge its existence. For the indigenous communities, 1.5 degrees warming is quite literally a death sentence and so understandably they were utterly distraught. Um, we, we see people dying in the global south. We also see people dying in this country and, and again that's not something that's spoken about enough. Air pollution in London kills 20,000 people every year. The, the causes of death obviously won't be marked by cause of death global warming but they, they, they are there and they are evident. And being able to turn the unseen into the seen is one of the most important challenges. When occasionally this issue is reported, it's like, oh, look at China, or look at Mongolia, or whatever. And like, yes, that is a sort of a vision of where we're heading. But it's happening right here too. And you know what? It's going to disproportionately affect poorer people. It's going to disproportionately affect people of colour because these are the people that are living in the type of areas in London which are most affected by pollution. And, and the way in which we have to analyse this is as, as power affecting and discriminating against these groups. People don't know this, but we are breaking the law on air pollution. We are breaking the law on so many of our supposed commitments. Um, and nothing happens because it's a government breaking the law as opposed to an individual. But when I put some glue on a door and put my hand on that, <laughs> you know, I've got a, you know, a trial that will last for five, six months. I got emailed actually after um, I glued my hand to the door by somebody who used to work for the Ministry of Transport. And he said, I was in the building when some activists from a campaign which was campaigning against the uh, new runway at Heathrow glued themselves to the door. And he said, look, it didn't get covered by the media and it didn't lead to any shift in government policy or anything that you could like observe. But it changed a lot of people's minds in that building and it made us think. And it changed my career path. And, and so even when you feel like your action is tiny and it's failed, there is something there and something has happened. And the ramifications from that flow out into the universe and achieve something. And that's all we can sort of hope for, right? Yeah, the political educational power of protest is often so underestimated because protest is seen as this thing that like slightly bizarre people do dressed in anoraks and it has no sort of like intellectual function in a society that is operating in a meaningful and progressive way. And we see that in the way that the news talks about protests. I mean, they, they won't. They'll talk about the, the gossip in Westminster over any sort of popular direct democracy manifestation that happens. 
Um, and we need to start thinking about the way in which we engage with politics and protest very differently because, like, just speaking really personally here, over the last couple of months, engaging in protest politics, I've learned so much and I've done so much and I have felt really empowered in a way that I've never felt before. And the positive impact that that has brought to me in my life, both intellectually and to get a bit hippy dippy a bit and spiritually to be honest like my own mental health and my own well-being and you feel fulfilled and you feel like what you're doing is is right and necessary and 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 those aspects of it can't be underestimated the, the more people doing this the better we will feel as a society it is so easy to write off protesters as being protesters and what i think and i would say this of course but what i think is different about extinction rebellion is is that diversity of people that it's bringing around. Like, the person that's got arrested the most in our movement is this 82-year-old man called Phil. Every time he does it and he says, I'm doing this for my grandchildren, I'm all like, oh, Phil, I love you. <laughs> um, but it's not just him. There are, there are kids there that are like 12, and there are 82-year-olds, and there are people who, and I think this is, again, another really important narrative, there are people quite literally quitting their job and devoting themselves full-time to this right now. When we were in our last stage of rebellion, we, we were having people come into the temporary office that we had every single day and saying, I've quit my job, what are you going to do with me? One time, one person walked in and said, I've quit my job, what are you going to do with me? And I said, well, look, I've got some like filing to do, so maybe you could do that, this bit. And they were like, no, 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 I'm, my name is Fahana Yamin, what are you going to do with me? And I was like, Fahana, I'm really sorry, I don't know who you are. If you could just maybe... And she was like... No, no, so I'm the former lead author of the IPCC. I have represented the Marshall Islands at the UN. Um, I'm one of the most respected voices in, in climate change. And she is now devoting her entire life to working for the rebellion. And the, there are people like that joining. There are people that you would traditionally see as part of the establishment um, coming into the fold and recognizing the necessity of civil disobedience and direct action. Uh, which is something really important that most people don't know and, and I think is a really important aspect of this movement. So if anyone wants to get involved in Extinction Rebellion, basically all you have to do is find where your local group is and go to a meeting. And it's sort of as easy as that. How we are structured is we're so decentralised. If anybody is acting within our values, which are just basic things like being a nice human being, staying non-violent all of the time, then you can sort of use and claim the name Extinction Rebellion and as a result we've had huge growth. We're now in 50 countries all across the world. We've had hundreds of groups set up just in this country alone and the way in which we're organising is different in different countries but basically if you're in the United Kingdom get down to your local group, get involved. What we'll do is we'll put you in an affinity group which is just like five or six other people that you can sort of self-organise with um, and that is that's basically the precedent that we use is that we are here as ordinary people to take action ourselves and to just go for it and do it. And so if you want to get stuck in, that's the best option. Before I turned on the microphone, I was talking to Sam about why I'm doing this podcast, because I just wanted to do something. And I guess the only thing I can do is write sketches. And he very calmly and quietly replied, everyone brings their own talents to the rebellion which I thought was really cool. And I just want to say, Sam, if you're listening, I felt very validated by that. So thank you. 
So I suppose in addition to buying your reusable cup and your bamboo cutlery, you could think about what you're best at, what your talents are, and how you could use those talents to help the climate change struggle. Maybe you write songs? Could you write a campaign anthem that reaches millions? Are you an incredible organiser? Every revolution needs someone who's good with lists and spreadsheets. If your talent is the sheer amount of plastic you can tip into the ocean, well, maybe rein that one in, no one wants that, get another hobby. To find out more about Extinction Rebellion, go to rebellion.earth, or you can follow them on Twitter at ExtinctionR from where you can find your local working group. We have some very exciting interviews coming up in future episodes. I've been speaking to some brilliant scientists and campaigners. But if you think there's someone I should be speaking to, you can tweet the podcast at NoPlanetBPod. I look forward to hearing from you. Human beings have always been foolish yet optimistic creatures, and this is especially the case when they resided on their original home planet. Think of the gambler who continues to bet even though they've lost everything, or the person who continues to post on Twitter despite the platform being a huge garbage fire. Maybe this time it will be different. Maybe I can carry on doing the same thing but with different results. Humans keep doing things which are bad for them, even when shown copious evidence that they are destroying themselves. They stood by as the barrier reef was destroyed, as the sea levels rose, as the glaciers melted and as the temperatures climbed ever higher. They shrugged their shoulders as millions were displaced from their homes, creating the largest migrant crisis in their history. As the droughts and heat waves became longer and more intense, why do something now when we can do nothing and panic later? But throughout all of this, there was always the glimmer of belief that they could change whenever they wanted. The belief that even the individual at home on their own could affect global change if they could just get up off the sofa. Such is the self-belief of human beings. If only they had got up off the sofa and made those changes. Maybe they wouldn't have had to abandon their home world. All of this is pure speculation, of course. But if there's one thing we are certain of, is that podcasts don't change anything, so don't bother... You have chosen to abandon the article Earth 1.0. Please confirm. Welcome to your information pod. Please select your subject of study. You have selected the children's television series Woof. Woof was a children's television series which ran for nine seasons on CITV between 1989 and 1997. It followed the adventures of a boy who could shapeshift into a dog. No Planet B was written and performed by me, Gemma Arrowsmith. Our theme was composed by Odin Hill-Marson and our artwork is by Tom Crowley. Incidental music is by Kevin McLeod. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. Listener.